Hi everyone and welcome back to Rad Talk. So this is podcast number 18. My name's Joe, and I'm joined by my fellow host Naaman. Hello. So a big thank you to our last guest, Nicola Jameson, who talked about her role as the students and new professionals officer at the Society and College of Radiographers. If you've not yet had a chance, please do go and take a listen. So we are absolutely really excited for this podcast because we have to introduce our guest for this evening, Dr. Amanda Boulderston, who's going to be discussing her phenomenal career, experiences of LGBTQ plus staff and patients and healthcare professionals, and also her latest venture, which is Queering Cancer. So hi, Amanda. Hi, Joe. Hi, Naaman. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm not sure about phenomenal, but that was very kind of you. No, your career is phenomenal. I think as a student, you were my idol and continue to be. So uh, it's amazing to have you on. And for anyone in radiotherapy, I know that they will already know you and know of you or read your research. So uh, yeah, you're like you're like one of those celebrities within the field. So, uh, so yeah, having you on is very exciting. Well, thank so, you. That's, that's pretty nice. <laughs> So Amanda, for anyone who maybe doesn't know you, so I'm thinking only of those outside of maybe radiotherapy, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your current role, um, kind of your career pathway? Yeah, sure. So as you can probably tell by my accent, I'm English originally, um, but I've lived in Canada for about 30 years. I trained uh, back in the mid 1980s in Oxford. So what was the Oxford Regional School of Radiography at that time? Um, for a diploma in the College of Radiographers at DCR, as it was then, and then went to work in Holland. That was my first job um, because of job shortages at the time in the UK. So I was there for about two, three years, came back to the UK, did some agency work, worked for Philips for a while, Philips Radiotherapy Systems, again, as it was then, as a technical author, which I really liked, actually writing um, um, information manuals for treatment planning systems. And then went to work in Canada. So I've been in Canada for about 30 years. Uh, started off in Ontario and worked as a radiation therapist there and then got interested in research and education. So actually, my dad unfortunately passed away in the 90s and um, it sort of took, um, obviously took it out of me and I took a bit of a career break for a year because uh, he'd had um, lung cancer, brain mets, and it's just very difficult to work in the environment. But that was, uh, I won't say a blessing in disguise, but it did kind of restart my career because when I started working again, I did a bachelor's and then on degree um, and then eventually a master's and then eventually a doctorate. So having that time to reflect and think about what I really wanted to do was really helpful. And it really made me kind of recommit, I think, to the career path of radiotherapy. Um, so, as I said, I, I got interested in education, but at the same time, after doing the bachelor's, I started doing a bit of research and I hadn't done that before because the um, DCR didn't include any research at the time. And my original research started out in patient experience and patient education. So around skincare, um, right at that time, Skincare is kind of this universal topic, isn't it? It just never goes away. And I think Rachel Harris um, is involved in that, as you know, from citing College of Radiographers. And she always says that's going to be on a grave. You know, Rachel Harris did skincare for her whole life. And I feel a bit like that as well. It's kind of been this, this thing that's followed me around. But that was my um, initial foray into research. 
But then as I went into a master's, um, I started looking at advanced practice in Ontario at the time in the early 2000s. We didn't really have any advanced practice. So um, took a trip over to the UK and we did some evaluation, myself and Nicole Harnett, and got involved in that. Um, but I think if I'm reflecting back about what it was that I was interested in and what I primarily looked at, I think it was patients, like patient experience um, and patient relationships I've always been interested in. So how do we define ourselves as radiation therapists? What does that mean? What's our professional identity? How do we relate to patients? You know, what value do we bring to that relationship? Um, and how do we use our identities um, to kind of forge those relationships? And that's been my latest interest, I suppose, over the last 10 years or so. Um, and I've been, um, you know, involved more recently in looking at the experiences of sexual and gender minority staff and patients. Um, obviously, that stems from my own identity. So I'm a lesbian, I'm a cisgender lesbian. Um, and that's been something that's, uh, I guess, I guess it's hard to explain, but um, for for people in this kind of environment, like a heteronormative, cisnormative environment, being a sexual or gender minority was, is often seen as something that you have to conceal to some degree, or it's some, sometimes seen as a source of shame. Um, and that's just because of the environment that we've, we've grown up in. But for me as a radiation therapist, um, have, having a lesbian identity was always something that I felt I should cover up or downplay in my environment working as a clinical therapist. And it took me, you know, doing, I don't know, 20 years research, going through a master's and landing on a professional doctorate to be more comfortable, comfortable enough to start to explore what that means in terms of my own identity, but also in terms of the identity of patients um, and the people that I've interacted with. So my doctoral research ended up looking at how does sexual um, identity affect relationships, relationships with patients who are straight, relationships with patients who are sexual and gender minority themselves, and how does that affect your relationships with other staff? So if you're a sexual or gender minority and you're interacting with people who aren't in healthcare, which is a really conservative environment, what does that mean? And how does that work at, at work? So yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a ramble, but that's how I kind of landed on, I think, the area that I'm interested in and the work that I do now. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. It's quite, a, as probably as we've said with lots of our previous guests, a bit of a zigzag into where you've got to now. <laughs> yeah, definitely <laughs> but, a zigzag. But it's interesting to look at the path, right? Because you can kind of see the signposts and how it works out. But you're right, you know, you sort of launch into it and you only make sense of it by looking backwards. Can I ask, Amanda, what, what drove you to move to Canada? Um, actually, it was an advert in... Um, in radiography news or uh, whatever the newsletter was called at the time and it was quite attractive it was a picture of like boats on a harbour and sort of gleaming skies and <laughs> it was a it was a department at the time called the Toronto Bayview Regional Cancer Centre and I looked at it and thought oh that looks gorgeous um, and I was looking to make a move I was thinking about moving maybe to Australia wasn't quite sure so I ended up moving to Toronto for this job, only to find out that the actual Toronto Bayview Regional Cancer Centre was like 10 kilometres north of Lake Ontario. And it was January, it was like minus 20. So it was quite a culture shock, but it turned out to be a really good move because um, at the time, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, but I always found that um, radiation therapy practice in the UK was quite hierarchical. 
you know, you, you had to be a certain level to be able to do certain things. And it wasn't the case in Canada. It's more of a flat um, professional structure. I think I ended up doing a lot more a lot earlier than I would have done if I'd stayed in the UK. Um, so yeah, it was a good move, I guess, professionally and personally in the end. That's really interesting. I loved it. So I've been to Canada twice now so i did a i met you amanda when i was very junior so i won the winston churchill's fellowship so i got to go round canada and uh you will all appreciate this when amanda said oh you're doing some brilliant work around staff recruitment and retention in radiotherapy let's just get you in a meeting room and we can have a little conversation and then it basically she broadcast me to the whole of canada and i was like oh my gosh this is really scary but I do remember I loved Toronto and actually I got offered a job when I was in Toronto at the university. They were like, oh, we're advertising. Would you consider moving over? And I was going through IVF at the time. So I could have had a very different career journey to what I did oh. have as a result of that. So I feel like you're getting your revenge on me now, Joe, by testing <laughs> this to the world. <laughs> the department's now um, the Odette Cancer Centre. So I think that's that's probably where I met you. Yeah. Or just to follow on, just for anyone listening who might consider a career move to Toronto, um, is there a different way to, I know the universities there work slightly differently than they do to here in the UK, because do they have a fourth year, which is more like a, a working placement where you're paid at the same time? No, you're not paid, um, but for many, many universities, yeah, the clinical practicum, the clinical placements are in the last year, um, but they're three or four year programmes. And I think at the time when I moved out, there was a reciprocity, a re reciprocal agreement between the Society of Radiographers and the Canadian Association of Medical Radiation Technologists. So I didn't have to resit my, um, my, my exam. And again, very unfortunately, now if you come to Canada to practice clinically, you have to pass the CMRT exam. But people do it and people come out and work here. And yeah, as I said, I think it's a great place to work. I've heard it was quite a difficult exam. <laughs> Yeah, that's what people say. I'm just glad I didn't have to take it. Yeah. <laughs> is that because is that our pre-registration programmes aren't good enough? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's very interesting how different it could have been. You could have been surfing rather than being in minus 15 degrees. But Yeah, that's true. I wonder if I'd stayed in Australia as long as I stayed in Canada. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows now? But um, I suppose moving... Well, going kind of back to what you said about your identity playing a role, do you think it's having more of an effect on your understanding of yourself moving forward? Um, I think so. And I, I think for all kind of people that are sexual and gender minorities, that that coming out process is, is really individual. Uh, you know, whether you're coming out as trans or whether you're coming out as lesbian or gay, bisexual. Um, but I think my doctorate kind of looked at coming out. So coming out, is it beneficial? Will it help? Because for me, I think as a radiation therapist, interacting with patients that I knew, maybe gay, lesbian, bisexual, I didn't actually look at um, gender minorities in my research. Um, I knew that sometimes I felt a connection with them and I made a difference. And I use an example in my um, doctoral dissertation about a patient that I met who had lung cancer. And he came in with his partner and bear in mind, this was like 20, 25 years ago. Um, and the radiation oncologist sat with them and, and went through the usual spiel about this is what's going to happen. Uh, and the patient was in for a palliative course of radiation therapy. And when the physician left the room, the patient started crying. And I was there as a therapist to just to talk to them and tell them of what the simulation process was going to be like and take them in. 
So I sort of paused a little bit and I asked them, was that a shock? You know, have you, have you heard this before? And the patient said to me, um, you know, no one's ever treated us like a couple before. We've always been treated, you know, a bit like pariahs. And, and then the partner said to me, yeah, they would have found his tumor earlier if they hadn't consistently kept testing him for HIV because he was quite young um, and he'd lost a lot of weight. So they just assumed that he had HIV. So it took them a long time to figure out that he had a cancer, a lung cancer. So it kind of, uh, it shook me and I think, and I wondered why they told me and I used to wear a little, uh, little pink triangle pin on my lapel as a sort of identifier, a little subtle identifier. And I think they probably told me because I was a lesbian, but I remember thinking um, at that point, thinking how hard that was for patients who are sexual and gender minorities to go through that kind of process and not only face at that point, maybe overt discrimination and prejudice, um, but also to feel invisible, you know, and to feel not valued and that partner not being recognized and that loving source of support not being available to that patient. It really, it really shook me. And I think probably that was the point when I started to be more interested in that because I felt that I'd made a difference. But I saw therapists and oncologists talk to patients and I clocked that the person who was with them was not a friend. It was a partner. And I'd seen that friend not come out or not mention that they were the partner because they were worried that they may be treated differently if they'd come out. So that patient had gone through the whole course of treatment with the therapist not really knowing who they were or who their social support system was. So it's hugely important um, to sort of, you know, meander back to your point, I think, Naaman about coming out and identity. Um, but we all, you know, we all sort of carry different identities, obviously, intersectionally, we can be many different things, but and they play different roles at different points. But for patients, and also importantly, I think for radiation therapists, oncology professionals, you know, navigating that sexual identity and healthcare environment can be quite tricky and problematic. So I think it's only, as I said, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of in my, I'm in my fifties now and I'm professionally very secure. Um, it's only been the last five, 10 years that I've been comfortable talking about it. I have been downplaying it or covering as um, people call it my whole life. So if, um, if somebody had said to me, you know, are you gay? Do you have a wife? I would have said yes. But in many cases, I wouldn't have volunteered that information. I would have just kept quiet. So it's very contextual. It depends on who's asking, what the situation is, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I suppose it's on comfort levels, isn't it? To draw the parallel, obviously, at the minute is the kind of the NHS rainbow badge. I think more people are sort of wearing. And that's, I don't know, if I had a friend who said, well, actually, before it was, as you said, it was an identifier to say that you are maybe LGBTQ plus, for example, whereas now there's more allies. Um, I suppose is that something that's changing in Canada as well as here? I think so. And I think that I think it's Michael Farquhar that does that. And I think that's an amazing initiative, yeah. um, the, the Rainbow Badge initiative. And I think the idea behind that is that if you wear it and you are an ally, you need a certain level of, of education. You can't just put it on and say, I'm an ally because... Um, you know, if somebody comes up to you and, and opens up and comes out and then crickets because you're not quite sure how to respond or you make a mistake or you use the wrong terminology or the wrong pronouns, it's kind of worse in a way. And that's sort of reflected in the literature. You know, when patients, when we ask patients about do they come out in healthcare situations, quite often they say, well, I, do, I did come out, like I ticked the form and the intake form to say that I was trans or I was gay. 
Um, but then everybody ignored it. You know, and I went through to the physician and the physician asked me about my husband. So what was the point actually it made me feel worse. So I think the Rainbow Badge Initiative is, is a great initiative because it does couple a certain amount of um, information and education with that badge. Um, but people who are um, sexual and gender minorities coming into healthcare, we do look like we scan the environment for clues. That's a big piece. You know, you look to see if you're going to be accepted. So if I'm in a waiting room and I look and if I see, um, you know, a certificate of diversity on the wall or if I see gay and lesbian newspaper from a local community um, or a safe space sticker, it, it makes me relax a little bit and it would make me more likely to, to disclose. Um, so all of these things, these kind of signifiers are important as well as other sort of organisational changes that you can make to welcome sexual and gender minority patients and staff because if staff are comfortable and they see these signifiers and they know that they have they work in an affirming and positive organization then patients are going to be more comfortable and staff might be more comfortable to come out more comfortable to connect with patients and patients can get that source of support from staff and to kind of circle back again sorry I think I'm rambling a bit but in looking at research with other kinds of identities, specifically like racial identities, there is quite a lot of evidence that it does help. So, you know, for doctors talking to a patient from um, the same the same racial group, that patient's more likely to follow instructions, more likely to be adherent to medication, more likely to come to a follow-up, more likely to rate that encounter more highly. Uh, and it's the same with any identity. It doesn't matter what that identity is. You can make a contextual and informed professional relationship with a patient based on an identity. I think you raised a really important point there, Amanda, specifically around the use of kind of identifiers. And I know, so I sit on the HQ team for HP's day. So I was one of the early people to get on board on Twitter to kind of go, this is an amazing um, opportunity for us to promote allied health professions here in the UK and around the world. And obviously with COVID and the pandemic, the rainbow was a sign that lots of people in the UK would utilise to almost show their appreciation for the work the NHS were doing. And a lot of trusts took that on board and utilised the rainbow to signify that support of the NHS and utilised it within lots of their branding and things. Do you think that would have inadvertently had a big impact on people who who had fought to almost have that as a recognised branding for um, ensuring that people could identify trusts, brands, people that were supportive? I mean, I did see a bit of discussion about that, obviously, um, on Twitter, like you said, on social media, people pushing back a bit and saying, yes, it, it does kind of blur that, um, that distinction between this is a safe space and this is a space that supports the NHS. So I don't think anyone was suggesting that it shouldn't be used, but yeah, it does get a bit confusing, I think. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of one of many things that departments and individuals can do to make themselves um, more more welcoming and more informed about dealing with patients from different um, different sexual and gender minority backgrounds. Yeah, and I suppose when I mean, we touched on um, gender pronouns as well, I think it's something that I've noticed more in the past sort of 18 months and you're seeing it more and more often in email signatures. So I know Macmillan launched Joe, I think you could probably give more insight into this, but I know they launched a big campaign around it and any Macmillan professional that I saw would instantly had kind of opened up and shared their pronouns as well. 
Um, that's probably one thing, as you said, is helping kind of make that environment a bit more comfortable for people. And I know it's been Trans um, Awareness Week this week, I suppose, yeah. Um, it's. I think it's, it's nice to see, as you said, having a badge on, really good point, but actually you do need to know a lot more about it. It's not just about wearing the badge. Yeah, and it helps, you know, with the hello, my name is badges now that you can get those with your pronouns on and like I have mine on my Zoom call and that kind of thing. It does normalise it. Um, but it, it can also, I think, I don't mean to be negative about it because it's it's great and I think everyone should should be aware of what everybody else's pronouns and use them appropriately. But again, sometimes, you know, with all good intention going around a room and saying, oh, let's everybody say their pronouns and everybody cis apart from one person who's non-binary, who, who then is outed by having to, to say, well, actually I'm they, them. And everyone's like, oh, okay, well, they're non-binary. So it, it, I think you have to also do that sensitively. Although, you know, the awareness and, and the sort of groundswell of everybody being aware of it and using it is, is a good thing. Yeah, I agree. Um, I know we've talked about, um, well, I've said the term LGBTQ+. I think you said to me that there's a different term or an alternative term that you use as well. Oh, yes, in Canada. Interchangeable so term. <laughs> I tend to say sexual and gender minority just because it's shorter. And, you know, the LGBTQ2S plus acronym is getting longer and longer and, and more inclusive, which is great, but it can get a little bit hard to remember and, and say. Um, but yeah, in Canada, we usually have 2S as well, which is two-spirited, two-spirit, um, which is a, an Indigenous, a Nationalby term, which refers to somebody who has male and female spirits within the same body. So it's a little bit like um, trans, um, but not quite because it also includes a spiritual component but yeah so you'll see that here but obviously not in England because you don't have any indigenous people so Amanda in terms yes, of kind yeah. of your your doctorate <laughs> um which yeah. I have read so um oh my God, seems... you're like the only person that's read it oh <laughs> that's not true at all uh, I know lots of people that have read it um and it's a great learning resource and we will definitely share the link to it um, but from kind of your experiences being involved in the research, the doctorate that you did, your own personal experiences, how do you think that has affected you as a practitioner, as someone who supports patients, but also obviously now working in education? You know, how has all of this learning developed you? Um, yeah, I guess that's a good question. I suppose as long as well as um influencing me to kind of develop educational materials like I've developed a course for the CMRT for example called Identity Matters which is several different modules um, for um, graduated professionals to learn more about sexual and gender minority issues and, and other things like that that I've done um, and teaching my students like I did a, an evaluation of how much LGBTQ content was in our curriculum which the answer was not much it's a bit of a spoiler and then trying to push to have more of that involved um, and a student research project, one of our undergrad student research projects was looking at how much um, radiation therapists in Canada know about sexual and gender minority. So I suppose it's informed a lot. And I'm kind of always looking for opportunities to, to um, make sure that we um, include sexual and gender minority patients in, in teaching rather than just being kind of tokenistic. Um, but I suppose it's a bit of a mix. So there's that sexual and gender minority component, but there's also the, the way that I did my doctorate, which was um, 
which was narrative. So it was autoethnography, which because it's personal to me. So autoethnography means really um, writing about things that you know about and then bringing in the wider research into that as well. So I, I wrote about my experience, but I also worked with three um, uh, lesbian or gay radiation therapists that I was friends with and kind of constructed stories about our experiences. And I love stories, I love narratives, but one of the main reasons I picked that route was because it's much easier to read a story than it is to read, you know, a, a big hefty dissertation and stories are engaging and personal and, and all that kind of thing. So I think that's also affected me, the way that I wrote that and the way that I researched it has allowed me to be more open to using storytelling. I was always a qualitative researcher, but never quite that qualitative. And, and that to me is kind of the edge of qualitative research. People get a bit scared about using their own experiences and, and using themselves as a, as a research tool. And just basically writing stories are kind of scary to people as well. You, know, you have to kind of craft them to read like a story. They have to have a bit of tension and a bit of conflict and they have to be interesting. So, so all of that's informed me and I'm the editor of the Canadian journal JMIRS um, and we've been uh, using narratives I think for about a year now so we have a new format for narrative submissions and we're encouraging patients we've had several patients publish stories there as well so again we want them to be interesting informative all of those things too so not just a this happened this happened this happened and it's a work in progress because it's an unusual thing to be doing um, so we're trying to sort of work it out as we go along, like how do we review them, how do we solicit them, how do we evaluate a poem, how do we evaluate a piece of art, um, but all these things kind of touch us, right, as human beings and as practitioners and as learners, I think you learn a lot more from a story that's put yourself into the, into the, um, the position of a patient or the position of something that didn't quite go right, and as a practitioner you're like, oh, yeah, that does sound painful, how can I learn from that? It was definitely the first uh, first piece of research I've read that has made me cry in a good way in terms of oh, like actually exactly. learning. But it is it's there's some really emotive points in that that really make you reflect on your own practice, but also knowing that you have had the power to make changes to people's lives. And maybe I didn't appreciate that and I didn't do it. And a bit of that is guilt of knowing that actually I didn't support patients or I didn't do everything that I should have done right. And so that whole education and especially uh, it would be great to talk to you about queering cancer and and the venture that you have. But I am a huge like you'll know that I share everything around queering cancer because I have learned so much from it. Um, I use it in all my teaching. We had interviews for jobs uh, at Sheffield Hallam and uh, people were talking um, about different characteristics. And I was like, you've got to go on and have a look at Queering Cancer Resources because it is an amazing resource. So if anyone hasn't had a look at it, please go on and have a look. So Amanda, did you want to say a little bit about what Queering Cancer is? Yeah, actually, thanks for bringing that up. That's um, It's a good segue, I suppose, because I can talk a little bit about queering cancer, but one of the big focuses for me was our story section. Um, and I really pushed for having that. And that is stories of sexual and gender minority patients that have had cancer treatment or have been affected by cancer. So we have a collection of those stories on there as well. And they're great teaching tools. Um, and I use them as well. So part of using stories, I want to use stories in my undergrad teaching. Um, we have an oncology course, for example, where we have narrative assignments 
So students pick something that, that moves them and they talk about it. So a little bit different from our usual kind of essays and multiple choice quizzes. Um, but Queering Cancer came out of um, my doctoral research because a couple of years in, there was um, a CIHR, Canadian Institutes of Health Research grant that was offered to, and it was a knowledge translation gap, um, looking at, again, sexual and gender minority health issues. So what they were saying was, um, we want somebody to submit something that we know will help bridge a gap. So the research says, um, I think as you guys are well aware that, um, you know, queer, trans, non-binary, sexual, gender minority patients have worse outcomes, you know, they're less able to access screening or less uh, likely to go for screening um, and have sort of issues all the way along the cancer pathway. So these are well-known things. And one of the well-known things in that that we feel that we can affect maybe as radiation therapists is, is health information, right? Because we talk to patients, we develop health education and patient education materials. It's, it's part of our role. It's a really important part of our role. So that really interested me. Um, and I think alluding to the fact that I think Naaman, we were talking about, you know, people maybe being reluctant to go to um, a support group that's specifically for heterosexual cisgender patients. So we know that there's this information and support gap and that's what Career in Cancer was kind of designed to fill. So long story short, I guess I got together with another couple of um, graduate researchers, Evan Taylor, who's now at the University of Fraser Valley and Megan McInnes, who's at Queen's University in Ontario. And we pitched and were accepted for the development of a website and the website has a, a large inventory of um, specific resources for LGBTQ2S plus patients. Um, it's a sort of searchable database. We have the stories page. Um, and um, we used to have a forum for patients, but we found after the uh, pandemic, patients were going online and finding connections. So we recently retooled that to include an education page. So there are quite a few free or very low cost educational resources there. So people interested in learning more about taking care of a uh, section of gender minority patients or you know providing affirming environments those are really great resources to access so thank you for asking about that joe <laughs> yeah i think what you said about the what we discussed with the support groups i think from my experience with patients um i think it depends on demographic as well depending sort of where you live now like i'm living in london Think there's a lot more patients who are more open to discuss these sort of things um and i think some of the support groups that we i don't know we might we may sort of direct them to as you said if they're aimed at a certain demographic some patients i know there was a report by mcmillan cancer support i think in 2013 um i think it's called the, the emerging picture of lgbt people with cancer um and it's stated kind of almost in fact if you want that yeah lesbian and bisexual women felt excluded from support groups um, as the environment sort of wasn't comfortable enough for them to open up about their sexuality. So we have a like an amazing Maggie Centre next door, which I think, I'm not, I'm not sure if they read the report, but obviously moving forward, as you said, with the, I don't know, just the environment that they have or the support groups, they're not sort of specific for any group there. You have cancer, come and, come and do a yoga session. It doesn't, you know, it's inclusive. It's not discriminatory or anything like that. And there are lots of other groups so I'm quite interested in prostate cancer. So I know Sean Ralph has set up um, quite well, just an amazing group, which I've signposted some of my patients to. And um, mm -hmm. they're very inclusive. And I think it's nice to see that these things are kind of moving forward a bit better. Yeah, that's a great out with prostate cancer, right? That's a really good um, support group. So Sean, um, I think back, back in the day, Sean and I connected and we wrote a paper about 
developing care for LGBTQ patients in medical radiation sciences environments. And I think that was partly because um, yeah, his clinical practice was around and his master's degree was around that. And I think his um, sexual health is one of his main focuses as well, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he's great to follow on Twitter as well. The Twitter sphere, as people That's eye roll great. at me when I promote uh, Twitter and they're like, oh, Joe. But honestly, it's it's such a great networking community. And especially if you are involved in research or projects and want to develop practice is a great way to network. So, yeah, I know I know I go on about it in lots of podcasts, but <laughs> it's it's beneficial to lots of people. Yeah, it really is. Made many connections through that. So, um, Amanda, in terms of kind of supporting staff and also patients, what what kind of advice would you offer? You know, we often say to our guests around top 10 tips, you know, things. But for some of the topics that we discuss as part of the podcast, sometimes it's really difficult to just confine it to that. But are they key, there's some key messages that you would really want the listeners to kind of take away from this podcast. Um, I suppose the, the top one, and, and this isn't really, this is a universal one, isn't it really, is just to avoid assumptions. So, you know, we talked about identities, people have multiple interacting intersectional identities, and we take those identities with us when we come into healthcare. But the environment that we're in, and I said, healthcare is super conservative, and really kind of geared heteronormative and all, and all the other normatives as well, not just heteronormative. But don't make assumptions, you know, don't make assumptions that that person with, with, them, with them is, is their friend, it might be their partner, you know, listen to what patients are saying as well is extremely important, because people will give you clues, you know, if, if people are a little bit unsure about you and, the, and they're sort of testing the waters, they usually use terminology that you can pick up on or you can ignore, and if you pick up on it and expand on it and use that terminology with the patient, if they talk about partner and you switch it to husband, if it's a female patient, for example, then they're going to shut that down and they're not going to come out to you. Um, so avoiding assumptions, listening to what the patient's saying to you and all like all general things, right, Joe, for, for practice. Um, these aren't specific um, to, to LGBTQ2S patients. Um, and, you know, learn more, I think, is, is the key. So as I've said, I think I've done quite a bit of outreach with Queering Cancer um, and I've done, you know, media interviews and stuff like that. And I'm always surprised. The first thing people ask is, is almost like, oh, that like they're surprised that there's a gap. You know, and we know, we know these things exist, right? We know that racism exists and, and homophobia exists. And, but, but people are a bit like, oh, you know, give me some examples, kind of convince me that this is actually the case, which A, is really annoying, you know, because just, just take a look, just Google, all of these things are out there. And B, it kind of, um, puts the onus on the person who's in the minority almost to, to sort of solve the problems for them and educate them, which always drives me crazy. And I'm not saying that's what you're asking for in any way, but what I would say is rather than me tell you what you need to do to improve your practice with patients, I would say to you, you know, go out and find out, like do some reading. There's, there's tons of stuff, go on querying cancer, look at the educational resources, learn about pronoun use, learn about how to make your physical environment more welcoming. Um, you know, learn about how to talk to patients about their pronouns or about how to, you know, um, ask them who their support system is or who their loved ones are. All these things are really important, but um, yeah, we don't have time to go into them. And uh, yeah, the information's, the information's out there. 
and you've got an amazing website that you can visit <laughs> but no you're out <laughs> yeah but you are on instagram there, there are a lot of really good um places and one, one that i really love on instagram is the inclusive care project and again if you go on queer and cancer we've linked to that uh, and not only is it all free, it's all on Instagram. So it's just these lovely little little bites of information about about care with, with little quizzes to test your knowledge. Uh, it's run by a person called Ellie from from Toronto, who's who's just fantastic. But uh, yeah, there's a ton out there, and some of it's some of it's fun, easy, and easy to digest. It's interesting actually that you you almost said the same that Shireen said which was essentially when she was looking at the equality, diversity, inclusivity work, she's like, it's not for us to necessarily dictate. It's very okay. much around, you know, you should, you should want to be this practitioner. You need to find out and do the legwork of, you know, how can I be better? And that goes for anything, uh, irrespective of whether it is racism or homophobia or any, any kind of area of practice, it, it absolutely doesn't matter. It's about yeah. you taking responsibility for your learning and your support mechanisms for the for the population that you're serving. Um, yeah, and if you're working with patients, or sorry, if you're working with staff that are LGBTQ, um, don't rely on them to educate you. They might love it, they might want to, but you know, I know a lot of um, staff that that talk about this, and we talked about the minority tax of having to educate people. And after a while, it just gets really tiring, and it's just like you know go and learn it's um what it's not up to you know black people to solve racism it's up to white people i think it's the same thing it's not up to queer trans non-binary people to solve homophobia and uh, and um sexism so yeah <laughs> i think for me the presumptions thing just to be perfectly honest i think there was a time when i was very presumptuous about um sort of maybe interacting with the patient to ask about their support network so saying i don't know to a male patient and what does your wife do? How are they getting on? Rather than, so a colleague I used to work with when she sort of trained me up and stuff, she said, well, why don't you just say, well, you know, who's your support network? Do an open question as opposed to, you know, he or she or, you know, whatever. And then say, if they don't offer up straight away, they might not feel comfortable with you or they just haven't kind of picked up on that. Just respond by saying, okay, so, you know, how, how can we support them? And then slowly build that comfort up. That, that's something for me. I think I've tried to improve just maybe because of my traditional upbringing in India, my grandma would never hear of this conversation. <laughs> and that's something I've grown up with. But I think now more and more people are more comfortable to discuss these things and accept that this is something that's normal. And as you said, so normalising it and making that comfort or that comfortable environment, I suppose, for patients and staff. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's it's like we've said, it's just it's a normal part of being a radiation therapist. It's a normal part of our practice is to make that um, connection, that relationship with the patient and not make assumptions. And we've, you know, we've all made that assumption and, and said, um, oh, is, is that your daughter with you? And it happens to be that person's wife. So, you know, we know, yep. <laughs> we know not to step over that. It's the same thing, really. It's letting the patient lead. And uh, as Joe would say, active listening. Active listening, yeah. One of Joe's favorites. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of active listening despite talking a lot so 
<laughs> I have to temper my talking with my active listening. Um, so one thing I would throw in there, Amanda, because I have to do it for the audience because we've had lots of uh, lots of podcasts. So radiation therapist is the terminology that you guys use in Canada. Um, so for anyone who's going, oh, Joe hasn't pulled Amanda up for calling therapeutic <laughs> radiation therapist. She is well within her rights to use radiation therapists. <laughs> yeah, that's what we use in Canada. Yes, your therapeutic radiographers, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so it was it was interesting because um, we've recently have had the LT Rap conference this week, and and uh, the first I chaired, we had this discussion around what is advanced practice, and you know, internationally, how do we recognise advanced practice? And I did chuckle when I was like, actually, in the UK, we really struggle to define the therapeutic radiographer. <laughs> so actually. We've got a lot of work to do, even getting anywhere near advanced practice. And obviously, Amanda, you're part of that group as well in uh, in forging the LT rap. So as we started the conversation on the podcast, you know, you've got so many strings to your bow um, and areas of practice that you're involved in. Is there anything that you're most proud of within your career? Oh, that's a good question. That's um, throw, throwing you uh, in the spotlight there, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, probably this, the, the query cancer stuff, because it is so personal and I feel like it just, as I said, it's it's kind of been building for my whole career. It's a kind of extension of, of what I've always done. And, and I feel, you know, as you get older, you want to do something that's really meaningful um, and you want to do something that's honest and aligned with your values. And I think this really is aligned with my values and, and I love doing it. It's not work. Like I do a lot of stuff outside work. So I'm, I love teaching. Um, my undergraduate is, uh, work is, is my job, but all the other stuff I just do outside. And this is the stuff that really kind of floats my boat, you know, gives me gives me a reason to get up in the morning. So so this and I, and I think I've always been involved in my professional association and I've, I've been um, like president of um, the CMRT and, and worked with the CMRT. And I think some of that work as well, I'm, I'm proud of. So, yeah, but mostly my querying cancer stuff, I think. As we said, you are a celebrity in the radiotherapy world for all the work you do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, for anyone who hasn't read any of your research, definitely go on and have a look in any library searching journal around oncology and you'll definitely find Dr. Amanda Boulderston. So thank you all for listening to Rad Talk today. Your hosts have been me, Joe, and my colleague, Naaman. A huge thanks again to our guest, Dr. Amanda Boulderston. It's been an amazing podcast. And I know just from the smiles that we've had um, over Zoom, it's been really interesting and one that Naaman and I were really excited to do. So if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please do go and consider the reflective questions posted um, along with the links to the resources and the literature that we've discussed. Also, if you would like to receive some CPD digital badge, then you can go onto the Google form shared along with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Rachel Moses, who is head of clinical leadership development within the NHS Leadership Academy and is a consultant clinical physiotherapist. So another allied health professional. So stay tuned. Thank you again both and take care and good night. Thank you. Thank you.